Go to your local real estate investment group. Look at the people around there. Realize that they're just like you. They talk like you. They dress like you. And a lot of them started broke like you. Um, and if they can do it, you can do it too. So at any given time in the United States, there are markets that are emerging. It doesn't matter what the national economy is doing because it's, it's all about the local economy and what they're doing to move jobs in. Like, how'd you do that? Can you teach me? I'd be like, yeah, sure. Uh, but people would always fall off at the, at the doer stage. You know, it's like, hey, do this, then do this. It's like, oh, I actually got to do something. It's like, yeah, that's how you get there. You got to take action and you got to set yourself up at the beginning of each week. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou. And boy, do we have an exciting guest lined up for you today. Today's guest is one of the leading thought leaders in the world of real estate investing. This is a man who went from being a struggling landscaper to a self-made billionaire. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one. The only, the legendary Dave Lindahl. Welcome to the show, Dave. Hey, thanks, Nikki. How's it going? Good to be here. Good to have you here, my man. So it's really, really a pleasure to have you here. I'm excited about our conversation. Let me tell you about the folks that are going to be listening to us. These are the ones who've got the courage to go after a dream and make it happen in a big, powerful way. They come here, not because of me, because they hear me every week. They come here because of you. They want to learn from you. They want to open themselves to you. They want to take what you've got to give them. But before they can do that, they got to get to know you. So tell us your backstory. How'd you get to be the great Dave Lindahl? All right. Well, uh, I live just south of Boston, and I grew up with a couple of parents that were uh, we were lower middle class, I just say. My father worked two jobs to support us. My mom was a fish cutter on the fish piers of Boston. Uh, most of my life. Uh, and then as I went, when I turned like I was a derelict of a kid, you, you know, I started uh, doing some things when I was 12 and 13 years old, joined a rock and roll band as lead vocals when I was 16. Uh, I was in that band until I was about 24, 25. And I left with a few brain cells left. And uh, I thought to myself, you know, I'm just tired of this life. I wanted things. Um, and uh, I, in order to get them, I knew, you know, I had always had this goal of being an entrepreneur, of, of owning my own business. And so when I left that that band, we had just. If you, have you ever been in a band, Nikki? No, never I've been, been in a band. Well, when you lose one of the, anybody that's been in a band, you know, if you lose one of your players, like your drummer, your guitarist, you know, your bass player, it it takes like weeks, if not months, to replace them. Uh, so we had just lost a rhythm guitarist for a second time, and we thought, damn, you know, I, it's it's time for me to check out. And back then, you know, I was looking around to see what I wanted to do. Um, it was April in Boston; the grass just started growing. And I borrowed my father's landscaper. I was living in a one-bedroom apartment. I borrowed my father's lawnmower and knocked on people that had uh, high grass. I knocked on their doors and asked them if I could mow their lawn. <laughs> that first year, I got about 45 accounts. That worked out pretty well. Except in, in Boston, it's cold in the winter and everything freezes. So I did jo odd jobs to survive the first couple of winters. From there, a friend worked for a bank going into my third winter, realized I was struggling 
then asked me if I wanted to do the repairs on a, on a property for the bank. They were foreclosing, a local bank. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And he said, I'll make sure you get the job. You know, I'll see the other bids coming in. I'll make sure you're a little bitter. That was fine. But my real problem was I didn't know how to do the work. Um, so I had my cousin go with me um, through the job, help me bid it. And then he helped me do that first deal. The bank liked it, uh, got it done. They resold the property, asked me to bid a second. And then I realized, wow, this could be a business. So just like I did with the lawns door to door, I went door to door with the banks and I started getting um, uh, rehabs to do. Uh, and while I was doing that, the spring came, lawn service started coming in again. And and then I saw this course on how to get rich in real estate and I bought it. It was by Carl, uh, Carlton Sheets. Carlton um, Sheets, sure. I heard of him. Yeah, it was a long time ago. Uh, but I bought it and had some really good advice in there and I followed it. And But I shelved it for a while because I was so busy. Then they had the new and improved edition. I bought that one too. Um, and the best piece of advice I got from that course was go to your local real estate investment group, look at the people around there, realize that they're just like you. They talk like you, they dress like you. And a lot of them started broke like you. Um, and if they can do it, you can do it too. And that's what my big takeaway was. And I, I started, uh, I started asking that question, you know, why not me? Why, you know, why not me being successful? Um, and I started taking people out to lunch. I started getting, getting other people's courses uh, but back then, everybody was flipping single family houses. I saw an interview with a guy by the name of Harry Helmsley. He started with nothing in New York City, ended sure. up owning the Empire State Building. And during the interview, the biographer said, Harry, was it about apartment buildings that got you going? And Harry said, I always liked the idea that a group of people, the tenants, would, would give me money every month so I could pay the mortgage. In essence, they're buying the building for me. I liked the idea that they would give me money every month so I could hire a management company to to collect the rents and take the phone calls from the tenants so I didn't have to. I could they I could pay for a maintenance man to swing the hammers and take out the trash so I didn't have to. And at the end of the month, I would get so much money that I would pay those expensive expenses and have extra money, uh, money that I could reinvest, put into a savings account, or just go out and have some fun with. And that interview changed the trajectory of my life because I thought, man, if that's really true, you know, if, if I didn't really believe it at first, but if that's really true, I want in. And I can do it with no money out of my pocket because I had none. I want in. And um, I found a couple guys at the real, I told everybody at the Real Estate Investment Club what I was going to do. They all told me I was crazy. You know, your tenants are going to trash the place. They're not going to pay you rent. You're going to get foreclosed on. But there was a couple of guys in there that was doing it. And um, they weren't really, um, they weren't really showboaty or anything, but they were driving better cars, wearing better clothes and taking longer vacations. So I started talking to them and asked them, you know, is this true? And they said, yeah. And I was like, well, why isn't everybody doing it? And he said, because they're afraid to. And we get all the leads because they'd be, you know, advertising for houses. They get apartment deals. They didn't want to do them. They give them to these guys. So they mentored me in my first few deals. Um, and uh, for the first three years, I wouldn't buy anything bigger than a three to six unit property because I was afraid to. I was afraid to go any bigger than that. And then... I started learning about market cycles um, um, and I started learning about what moves markets like job growth and household formations. And I, re I recognized that my market was peaking and either I was going to have to get into an all cash position so I didn't lose any money. At this point, I had, I had a huge amount of cash flow coming in each month and I'd become a multimillionaire. Um, and I thought, you know, if I could find another market like my, my Boston was back then and start investing so I'd be at the beginning of the of the rise of the market, that would be great. And I did. I found Montgomery, Alabama. That was my first emerging market. I call them emerging markets. It was my first emerging market. Um, and I bought a couple of deals there, did really well. I went up to Huntsville, Alabama, my second emerging market, over to Jackson, Mississippi. 
And to make a long story short, before I knew it, I was in 18 different markets at the same time and owned over 9,000 units. And that was a short version of my story. That's pretty darn incredible. You know, so. Yeah, um, quite a ride. You're in 18 markets, did you say? I was. At one time, I was in 18 different markets. Total, total combined now, I've been in 29 different markets buying and selling multifamily. You know, we buy based on the market cycle. So, you know, the market goes up to a certain point, and then you get these signals that tell you that the market's starting to level off. So it's time to move that equity into another market that's just starting to rise. So by doing that, you multiply your equity, you know, two, three, four times in each market that you do. So at any given time in the United States, um, there are markets that are emerging anywhere between 15 to you know, 20. It doesn't matter what the national economy is doing because it's it's all about the local economy and what they're doing to move jobs in, jobs and job growth. Yes. Irrelevant. Okay. So talk about why it's irrelevant that it doesn't matter what the national economy is doing. Doesn't the national economy impact local economies? Uh, it can. Certainly there are others, there are some economies that mirror the national economy, but what we look for is we look for job growth. We look for household formations. Those are the first things uh, that we're looking at. Like back in 2008, when the market crashed, Lehman Brothers dropped um, and everybody was looking like at 2008, 2009, like real estate was in the tank, but yet Little Rock, Arkansas had a 13% year over year job growth. That market was moving. So so we don't focus on national economies. They can give us an indication of, of, what, of what's happening broadly, but we look at the local markets, local economies, um, how strong the local government is, what they're doing for incentives to bring in jobs into a marketplace. Um, and then, you know, we, then we look for other criteria. We look for cities that are, are health hubs, you know, where everybody goes for their health care. Um, uh, shopping hubs where everybody goes for their shopping. We look for, uh, you know, a city that has uh, at least 100,000 people that has one highway going through it. So so the goods uh, can be uh, transported. Uh, we like a city that has one major carrier, airline carrier coming in. And typically from there, they start growing. So these things can pop up at any time, all dependent upon, you know, the dynamics of that particular market. And it usually lasts, the upside of that cycle usually lasts anywhere from, um, say five to seven years, again, depending upon how dynamic um, the market is. So once you find one of these markets and you're in it for the five to seven years, what happens then? Uh, do you start to liquidate your holdings and go into other markets? Like what is the, yeah. what is the strategy? So it depends on the market. Now, this is my fourth turn. You know, I've been investing since 1996. So it depends on the market at this point. But early on, if that if so, when I'm, so there's four phases of a market cycle, when it starts to come out of the emerging phase, it's called the seller's market phase two. If you can imagine a roller coaster and you're going up that roller coaster, you know, you're lean back and you're heading. You can see the peak, but you're not quite there yet. Well, you start seeing that peak when jobs begin to level off in a market, when the growth is no longer happening. Or when it starts to come down the other side, you know, get level. Uh, we start to see properties on the market for uh, longer periods of time. Sellers are still getting inflated prices, but it's, it's taking longer to get those prices. So that's the indicator. Yeah, there's still maybe a year or maybe even two years of upside. But I've learned that it's a lot less risky to take your money off the table and move it into another market that's just starting from the bottom, where you don't risk missing the market and having your properties roll over. So... Uh, when we hit that point where we're going into a seller's market phase two and job growths begin to level off, then we will we'll make that decision. Now, now it's like market by market, like Nashville is a great market. So we love to be in that. Huntsville is a great market. 
So we'll either sell like this last go round, 2021, 2022, people were just paying crazy prices for properties. And I know why it was. I didn't realize it at the time, uh, but COVID, I thought there was going to be a big opportunity when COVID happened. You know, the mom and pop uh, uh, property managers weren't going to be able to manage through COVID, COVID, uh, but they were because the office market and the retail market got so decimated that those sellers actually came into multifamily space, the safe space. And so they 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 boosted the prices. So anyway, that got in trouble, they were able to sell. But it also boosted, you know, values from around, you know, all of the all of the different markets. So we were getting offers on properties that were just crazy. But if it wasn't if it wasn't that happening, we would determine whether or not this property was what we call a legacy property or a legacy market, where we'll keep B properties and B areas through all of the different cycles, planning on giving them to our kids and our grandchildren. Okay, you said there's four uh, phases to a market cycle. So you you, you talked yeah. about the emerging phase and the seller market phase two. So what are the other phases? Yeah, so the emerging phase is actually two phases. So if we're looking at a roller coaster, and we're at the very bottom before you start going out. That's a buyer's market phase one. That's the start of the emerging phase. When you and the the way you uh, the big indicator for that market uh, turning is the fact that rents have started to rise for the first time after a number of years of either decline or being stagnant. So that just tells us national investors like, hey, here's a market rents are starting to increase. It's the start of their emerging phase. So it will go into, but there's no spec development happening right now because the rents don't support the spec development. So we go into the next phase, which is the seller's market phase one. It's about halfway up that, that roller coaster. And we know we're in a seller's market phase one, when rents have risen high enough in the market to support new construction. So now the new builders are starting to get into the market. So now we've got competition from which used to be the local guys. Well, the local guys were buying, if I can just reverse just a little bit, right before a buyer's market phase two at the bottom of the trough, there's going to be job announcements. And that's what moves the market. So when the job announcements hit, Sometimes we start investing then. We're contrarian investors. Our only competition are the local guys because nobody's investing in this market. The rents start to rise. Then we have national investors coming in because that's the start of the emerging phase. Um, rents equal or will support new construction. So bank lending starts again. So now we're competing against the guys that are building. And then as the market goes up, what will happen is the affordability index will start to lower. The amount that the average wage earner you know, um, it, uh, the amount that they can afford the average homeowner price starts to drop. When it drops to a 0.72, then the condo converters come in and they come in and they start buying for resale. They don't buy for cash flow, which is a big detriment to us because everything we do is based on cash flow. So um, shortly after that, you'll start seeing job growth uh, begin to decline or, or just level out. And then you go into a, buyer, a seller's market phase two. That's the sell signal. Um, that will be the top. That'll be a little bit before the top of the market. The market tops over, uh, starts to go down, and then we fall into a buyer's market phase one. And that's the whole downside of the market, where you know there's busted condo developments, there's busted uh, uh, construction projects, there's a ton of foreclosures, and then nothing changes until there's an announcement of job, uh, jobs. Wow. This is fascinating. So I look, I live in Toronto in Canada and, you know, the city's a little crazy because 2008 was like a blip. I think housing prices went down for six months. Then they started climbing mm. again. 
2020, housing prices didn't even go down during COVID. They actually shot up through the roof. Mm. And then interest rates in Canada have been climbing and climbing. So housing prices came down a little bit in Toronto. Now they're on their way back up again. It's insane, even though interest rates in, in Toronto are super, super high. Part of the issue for Toronto is that we get a fair amount of uh, immigration to Canada, and 70% of immigrants come into Toronto. Um, and the other thing is that from the rest of the country, tons of people want to live here. Toronto is probably the third largest city in North America. The only bigger cities are New York and L.A., Oh, wow. and, um, yeah, the greater Toronto area, when I moved here 41 years ago, I was a kid, I think it was two and a half million people. Now the greater Toronto area is six and a half, seven million people. Oh, wow. That's huge. It's, yeah. um, yeah. an emerging market. No, it's never stopped. 40 years. <laughs> you know, it's, wow. I can't imagine, I, I can tell you all this sounds great. And I think it applies to a lot of markets, but I don't even know how to what to make of Toronto. Uh, we've had slowdowns that have been so brief. Uh, construction in the 80s, condo building in Toronto was huge, absolutely massive. 90s, big recession all over, wasn't as much condo building. But man, from the 2000s all the way through now, condo building is still massive. Five, six times what it was in the 80s. And in the 80s, it was absolutely insanely big. So, um. I'm um, I'm interested in what you have to say for myself. You know, uh, it's something that I'm mulling over in my mind is how do I find a way to get into this uh, into this world of real estate? Because what I do, I love what I do. I'm really good at helping people. I make good money from it, but it is not an equity play. You know what I mean? There's me. I'm the brand, right? And you can't sell Nicky Baloo when he's gone, <laughs> right? Yeah. But you can sell a real estate portfolio, uh, and, and you can do something with that. So I'm listening to everything you have to say with interest. So let's talk about the branding of David Lindahl, how we take all this amazing stuff you've done. And what are you doing these days in terms of helping you be seen as the go-to uh, authority in the space, the thought leader in the multifamily space? Because these days, there's quite a few people that are putting themselves out there as multifamily people. There were just Two multifamily conferences in Toronto in the last two months. Yeah, we uh we've been teaching now since actually 2002. At one time, we were the only people teaching, um, and then I uh, created a lot of students, and those they've come up the ranks and they're teaching as well, which is great. You know, the more people that learn about this, the better. Um, we are on. I've got my own podcast now. Um, I'm starting to get onto other people's podcasts. That's what we do. You know, we have the education company that trains people on a regular basis. We have people going out. Um, we have events three times a month. Um, the three-day multifamily millions boot camp. And then we have a big event at the end of every year or near the end. This one's in September in San Diego called Ultimate Partnering. So like 1,500 people. So inside the world of folks who have super expertise and are looking at thought leadership, there's like five areas we say you need to you need to like look at in order to take your thought leadership to the next level right so number one is um first thing you got to do is take a deep dive into into you 
right? What is the story of your life? If if your life was a movie, what would be the the title of that story? And then look at the various things that you went through, both uh, adversity as well as uh, incredible accomplishments and achievements. And from there, extract your learnings, start putting that into messaging. So that's a process that takes a bit of time to get that done. And then you start developing IP and messaging and, and look at, well, who is it that you want to be speaking to? And then once all that is done, and that takes a while to do properly, the next thing we say you got to do is you got to start doing videos, speaking about what you do, but not pitching. People hate it when you pitch. They uh, they tune out after a while. They stop listening to people who just pitch and show for their companies. So start talking about an issue on a video channel, short form videos. After you've done that for a while, you start going on other people's podcasts, right? You, you create a, a signature talk on a podcast. So it's just like a signature stage talk. You've got a signature talk for the podcast and you start going on relevant podcasts. Once that's done, you start having your own podcast and your own podcast is about interviewing interesting, powerful people that you want to talk to and you want to learn from. You get those people on your show. Then you write yourself uh, the first of your books uh, and then you create a social media overlay to pull all that through together on relevant social media to make that happen. And the folks that we've talked to that have done that, that's helped them massively increase uh, the number of people that end up buying from them, helps them attract A-level players to their team who beg to work with them. It helps them reduce attrition in a big way, both from customers as well as employees. It helps them attract investors in a bigger way, and it helps them attract powerful, positive media attention over and above their own media properties. So that's kind of the the founder thought leader brand, the industry thought leader brand as we see it. So um, I like what you're doing. You've obviously created a fantastic track record of success. You've obviously doing a lot of things from your educational point of view. What's next for Dave Lindahl? What What is important to you going forward? Why are you getting on shows right now and working as hard as you are? We just uh, started getting back into it, actually. Uh, I had kids seven years ago, um, twin girls, and then two years later, a boy. I took time off, um, ran the education company, but it was off market. You know, this was in, uh, my partners were saying, hey, buy, buy, buy. And I'm like, no, man, this is not the time to buy. This is my fourth turn of the cycle. So we were doing one-off deals here and there. Um, but this is this is the opportunity now. This is the next three to five-year run. So right now we have... Um, Oh, we got four deals on the contract. We got two more that are coming. Uh, so it's a matter of getting the word out there. We had we had raised over two hundred and twenty-five million to fund our other deals, uh, but you know, seven years goes by, and that dry powder turns into somebody else's dry powder. So we've got people from our old list, but we're also you know we're we're getting out there to get new people on our list, basically. Okay, so basically. You went and you had kids and you uh, you pushed the pause button for a while. Now you're getting back into it. So tell me, if people want to find out more about your events, what you do, what's the best way? Where do we send them? They can go to rementor.com. Uh, that's the uh, official website. We also have another website, ultimatepartnering.com. And that is the big event, uh, the big year end event where people find money, people find deals, people find partners. It's awesome. Money, people, deals. You know, there's a um, there's a gentleman who passed away three years ago, and he was a very young man when he died. His name was Stefan Arnio, and he wrote a book called Money, People, Deal. 
Um, and it was the center of what he taught people around real estate investing. So I thought it was pretty cool that you said that. Yeah. You ever heard of Stefan? Do you know who he is? No. Yeah. He's from Canada? Yeah. From Winnipeg, Manitoba. Super, super cool uh, man. Dan Campbell and Steve Martell. Yeah. No. Uh, Stefan died three years ago. Uh, he was just 33 years old. But he'd... Uh, wow. He built uh, quite a business for himself. Um, he had an education company and he did real estate deals. And he also um, had a uh, spiritual experience and he started to write books uh, to be of service to men. Uh, and his uh, most powerful book is called Hard Times Create Strong Men. Uh, I highly recommend that book for any man to read. Uh, it is uh, an incredible manifesto of uh, you know what it is to be a man uh a good man in 2023 uh but uh he wrote the, his first book was money people deal and i thought that was pretty darn cool that he he came up with that uh, book title and then you mention it right now uh here as we're wrapping up this episode so we're going to make sure we put rementor.com and ultimatepartnering.com in the show notes so we like to wrap up each and every single one of our episodes Dave, by asking you as our guest expert um, what are your top three expert action steps? These are your best pieces of advice to help our listener take their business, take their life, take their inspiration to the next level. What say you? First thing you got to do is uh, ask yourself, you got to change questions around. So if you have a goal, you've got to ask yourself, how do I get it? You know, the, the thing that changed my life around was that we grew up poor and um, my mother always said, you know, oh, look what they have. Isn't that nice? But that's not for us because we don't have the money or look at that. They got that. They went on this vacation, but that's not for us because we don't have that money. And I was like, that was our lot in life. And then the one question I started asking myself is like, why don't we have the money? Like, or, you know, why can't we do these things? And then, then it became, why not me? You know, not the family, but why not me? And when I started saying, hey, why not me? Then I started asking myself, all right, so if it's going to be me, how do I do it? So that was the first question. All right, I want something, no matter what goal I have. My next question is, how do I get there? Um, from there, I'll go to, you always have to be, when you're changing, you have to be uncomfortable. You know, change is uncomfortable. So you've got to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, and when you get to that point, like I take an ice plunge every morning. I don't take that ice plunge because there's all of the great health benefits for it. The main reason I get in there every morning is because I don't want to do it. And I'm training my brain to do something I don't want to do first thing when I wake up. So um, that's the same thing with, you know, success. Success doesn't come when you're comfortable. So if you can create, if you can just get in the, this is what I tell people. If you will be uncomfortable for three to five years of your life, you will be, you will be comfortable for the rest of your life. You can be. So, so that's the second thing. And then thirdly, of course, it's, it's take action, you know, set yourself up, uh, take action, get a mentor. You know, somebody's, whatever it is that you want to do, somebody's already doing it and they're doing it very well. So find out who that person is and uh, reach out. Mentors love teaching other people. You know, when people were coming up to me when I first started, before I actually started educating and I've just seen this crazy, this kid who used to be crazy now has things like, how'd you do that? Can you teach me? I'd be like, yeah, sure. Uh, but people would always fall off at the, at the doer stage. You know, it's like, hey, do this, then do this. I was like, oh, I actually got to do something. It's like, yeah, that's how you get there. You got to take action uh, and you got to set yourself up at the beginning of each week. Uh, do you know Frank McKinney? No. 
Frank McKinney's the rock and roll uh, million uh, real estate investor, right? So he uh, rehabs hundred million dollar houses, and he's written a couple of books. Um, I forget the name of them, but they're under Frank McKinney. Anyways, this is about like ten years ago, and he used to talk about how at the end of every week, uh, or at the beginning of every week, every Saturday morning, he would write down what he wants to get accomplished. And then the next Saturday, he would review it and figure out, you know, he would give himself a kudos for what he did get done. And then um, he would figure out wh why he didn't get what he didn't get done. And then he would write the next set. Uh, but the most important thing is, like, he set himself up for what he wanted to get accomplished that week. And that's what successful people do. Yeah. You know, that's very true. Now, I asked you for three. You actually ended up giving me five. Uh, as I counted. So the first thing you bonus. said, this is the bonus round. Yeah, you're the bonus <laughs> round. So first thing you said was, you gotta have a goal. So how do I get it? Why not me? If it's gonna be me, how do I do it? Right. So the goal is one, and then why not me? That's kind of two. And um, then after that is get uncomfortable, right? So that's like number three is get uncomfortable. You do the ice plunge every morning, not for the health benefits, but just because it mentally toughens you up. It gets you out of your comfort zone. So I, I like that. That's really good. And then you talked about take action. That's number four. But within take action, you, you sneaked in another important one, which is get a mentor. And obviously, I agree with that. I'm in the business of mentoring people around thought leadership and, uh, and other things. And if you don't have a mentor, you're toast. You, you know, I used to be one of the world's top fitness coaches. I worked with Olympic gold medal athletes, two Olympic gold medalists. I worked with uh, a Guinness world record holder who set three world records for running 12 hours on a treadmill. I worked with billionaire wow. CEOs. Um, and I worked with one of the world's leading um, thought leaders in the arena of personal development. Have you heard of Robin Sharma? Do you know who he is? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he wrote the book, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. And he hired me, Raymond Aaron, who's uh, Brigitte's coach, you know, Brigitte, who works with you. Who this. So Raymond was a client of mine when I was a fitness trainer, and he's been a client of mine. I helped him set up his podcast and think through some of his thought leadership aspects. Yeah. And he introduced me to Robin. When I started working with Robin, um, I noticed that Robin had unreal coaching clients, right? And that's one of the reasons I wanted to get into coaching business people. He coached billionaires. And I'm like, I want to coach billionaires, but for business, like, how do I double my income? How do I do all this? So he looked at me and he said, Nikki, if you want to double your income in any given year or double your capacity, if it's not even your income, triple your investment in personal and professional development. Hire a coach that you haven't hired before. Join a mastermind you haven't been a part of before. You know, attend a conference you haven't attended before. Do a course you haven't done before and read books that you haven't done before. I don't know if you can see behind me, but mm -hmm. I've got 5,000 books in my home, okay? And yeah. I've read over 4,000. For me, that's important. I've got six people who coach and mentor me. I, I run a couple of groups, three groups actually, and I'm part of another group myself. You know, and I think I don't do enough in that regard. I think I need to find myself a mentor who's going to get me from being a successful, uh, you know, brand as a as a as a coach, consultant, thought leader type, and take me into somebody who's going to be a successful equity builder in business. These things I think are important for me, and I think anybody listening to this, you got to have mentors. You got to be part of groups. You got to do courses. 
There is no pulling back on investing in you. Who's the most important asset in your business? It's you. It's Nikki Ballou in his business. It's Dave Lindahl in his business. It's you, the listener in your business. And if you're not investing in you every year and you don't continue to invest in you, you're making a huge mistake. So kudos to you for saying that. I think it's very, very true. So Dave, thanks so much for taking the time to, to share these. We're going to put all of this information in the show notes to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to releasing this episode. Please come back anytime. We can uh, you know, break down other aspects of uh, your expertise. I think it'd be fun. And um, offline, I'll make sure that I uh, make some connections on your behalf for some other podcasts that I think you'd be uh, great for. And I think that you would uh, you'd do well in. And, and as I said, we'll talk offline about you and, and the thought leadership you're building. I got a few ideas I'd love to share with you in that regard. And I, I think I've made a new friend. I hope you feel the same way. God bless you for coming on today. Absolutely. Thank you, Nikki. Appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's guest, the legendary Dave Lindahl, go to the show notes at thethoughtleaderrevolution.com or wherever you happen to listen to this episode, be it iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Audible, or what have you. Until next time, goodbye. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice.